This week, we put on wigs, crashed an opera, and partied like it was 1799. Because some of us finally watched Amadeus. Welcome back to How Did You Miss This? I'm Evan Toller Hickey, and with me as always are Michael Hansen and Krista Shane. And this week we watched Amadeus, the 1984, 1984 film. Um, I missed this the first time around because I was five, and this was really inappropriate for me. Uh, but Michael saw it in theaters. Yeah, I, um, I was not five, and my parents uh, were Swedish, so they would have thought anything is appropriate anyway. But yes, I was 12, and uh, I watched with my parents and my brother in Stockholm uh, when it came out to the theaters. Uh, I, I never watched it since, but it really left an impression with me, so I, I was really looking forward to you going back and watching it again. And Chris, I believe you missed this one too? Well, so this is the funny part of this, because when we were picking this, I thought I had missed this. Uh, as it turns out, when I was watching this, uh, I realized I had seen this because I was having, same as you, five-year-old or six-year-old or whatever I would have been, like nightmare flashbacks, because oh. some of these scenes scared the hell out of me when I was little. So I have some PTSD I didn't know about. So this that kind of came on. up in the middle of this. Yeah. <laughs> this week on How Did You Miss This? We revisit Chris's childhood drama. This is just going to be 40 minutes of me crying into a microphone about things my parents did from here on out. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> So before I tear up and break down, uh, why don't we uh, talk a little bit about uh, this movie? So um, this, like you said, Evan, was a 1984 uh, movie. Um, this movie was directed by Milos Forman. Uh, this was his eighth film. He already actually had uh, an Academy Award in the bag for uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. They need to actually come off some other successes too, like Hair. Um, and this was written uh, by Peter Schaffer. They filmed this in Prague. It was basically still almost looking like the 17th century. So they basically had to do nothing to change Prague uh, and set the scene. They basically took down a handful of electric lights uh, and shot this thing in the actual in uh, Prague and the actual Prague Opera House where many of Mozart's uh, actual operas had debuted and played, which is pretty cool. It is very cool. And actually, we'll get to this probably a little bit later. But when you say that they took down some electric lights, this entire film was shot with all natural lighting. It's all practical lighting. All of those candles are the lighting for the film. It's bananas. Yeah. Uh, it, so this wound up being the 12th highest uh, U.S. box office uh, of the year. Absolutely across the board, positive reviews. Uh, if you look it up now, it's got an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, and it was originally named as one of the top uh, 100 films for the uh, AFI's uh, top 100 films list. Uh, so like broad acclaim as well uh, as that year, it was the like King Kong at the Academy Awards. It had 11 nominations, in two to, including two for Best Actor. Uh, it won eight, including Best Picture, Best Director. Uh, F. Marie Abraham won Best Actor. 
Best screenplay based on other material, best art direction, best costume, best makeup, and best sound, as well as nominations for Tom Hulse as best actor. He couldn't win because F. Marie Abraham already did. Uh, film editing and cinematography. So just a runaway year for, for Amadeus. Amazing reviews, amazing results, uh, and just generally um, a, a kind of runaway success, especially for a smaller budget film. I think this is a, a good time then to ask each of us. So now that we've seen it, uh, Michael, like what did you think of this seeing it again? You know, it, I had such a strong memory of it and I was really looking forward to watching it. The first couple of minutes worried me deeply because I, all I could see was bad um, visuals I didn't think that the sound mixing, I didn't think the foley, the the sound effects, like the added wind uh, with the scenes. I thought it was oh, like this is this is a terrible movie. But I found myself forgetting all of that within minutes, and it just brought back everything, everything to do with the music and the, its powerful presence, the core themes that were a lot deeper than I remembered about the inspiration versus. Uh, working hard, the uh, the parent relationships. Uh, this had a tremendous impact on me, and I'm I'm really glad that that I watched it again. Evan, how about yourself as the the non viewer, the official non viewer of the of official non viewer? What do you think? Uh, well, I I agree with with Michael entirely. The first few moment, moments of this movie really worried me because. As you get into this movie, you realize that this is a movie of artistic choices, and they are big choices that they make on this. The the way that um, that the most people have American accents, uh, the way that uh, Tom Hulse's laugh for Mozart, uh, the 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 way that it's shot, the mise en scène of this movie. Big, big swings. And we've kind of gotten used to a world in which the director, while they they have a bit of an imprint on the movie, really it's producers and studios running the movies. And so Marvel movies have a particular Marvelness to them. Even though they they have, you know, James Gunn at the helm or uh you know, who, whoever else happens to be doing the movie, uh, at the time, but this movie has actors making big acting choices, directors making big directing choices. And once you give yourself over to that, it's awesome. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. uh, To your point, like this is the type of movie where typically you would come into it and everybody, even though they're supposed to be in Austria, would be speaking with British accents or something like that. Right. Like that would kind of be your typical thing. Uh, And and to your point, um, there is a lot of Milos Forman's fingerprints all over this because he was giving explicit direction to people to be like, just focus on being a good actor. You're not doing accents. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I think you're bang on, like there's a lot of big choices, even from the get go in this movie. Uh, and so for me, um, n- not 
kind of not having seen this movie, not remembering this movie, certainly having no grown up appreciation for this movie, just the fear and terror of a child. Um, yeah, like I was really pleased to have seen this movie. This is a really like excellent movie. And to your point, like it makes a lot of, um, you know, bold choices. Uh, the actors have some uh, amazing um, moments and, and uh, to really stand out themselves. And uh, like, it's easy to see how this winds up being, uh, you know, winning eight Academy Awards, being nominated or put on the AFI's top hundred list. Like it's, it's a, certainly a, 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 a thing where For a sure. lot of artistic um, stuff had to line up. Right. And we'll get into that more as we go. But uh, it sounds like all of us are pretty pleased. We'll talk about it a little bit more as we go too. about, uh, you know, are we coming back to this uh, next week or what? What? But I think here is probably a good spot to take a quick break. And then on the other side of the break, we'll get into what works and what doesn't about this movie. Hey, folks. All right. Uh, spoilers ahead. If you want to go check out Amadeus after our glowing reviews of it, by all means, go do so, because we are about to spoil everything for you. Uh, but if you've seen it or you don't care, then by all means, hang out with us while we get into it. Uh, but before we really get into it, uh, how about we tell you what this movie is about? Michael, what is this movie about? OK, so. The title sort of gives it away. It's uh, it's very much about uh, Amadeus Mozart, but it's told uh, through the eyes of uh, his arch rival Antonio Salieri uh, as he lives through his final days. So it kind of has this dual part of it. One is telling the entire, pretty much the entire life of Mozart, and at the same time also uh, living through the the final days of, uh, well, not the final days, but like the latter part of Salieri and what he's going through. So it's telling these two narratives side by side, and and that is a huge part of the attraction of this movie. So I think I think we're going to get into all of that uh, uh, fairly soon. So why don't we just jump into it? Well, speaking of it, right there, I mean. In terms of things that hold up, it seems like the 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 biggest piece of this is uh, the 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 main actors, right? Are, are Abraham and Hulse, or are Antonio Salieri and uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart? Uh, those two characters are just heavyweights. Like, would this be this movie without those two? I mean, they're fantastic. It, it I don't know that it would be the same movie without F. Murray Abraham. I think Tom Hulse is. Great. Would I like to have seen Tim Curry in that role? 1980s Tim Curry? Sure. But uh, F. Murray Abraham is is just swinging for the fences in in it and does a great job. To me, he deserves the award over Hulse and and just really carries the whole movie on his shoulders. So it's a really good point. The he really deserves everything that he won out of this, but he he really needs uh, Tom Hulse for that to work. He needs to have this absurd sort of terrible person who has all the raw talent and inspiration, but none of the none of the the style and kind of like the the restraint that goes with it. He needs that counterpart. If that had been I, the wrong person, I, it would never would have worked. I agree entirely. I think that there are a lot of 
other people who could have pulled that off really, really well. But F. Murray Abraham, to me, just totally embodies that role. But F. Murray Abraham just keeps keeps nailing it for me. And I agree with you, Michael, entirely about like you need that that counterbalance. But that's what Mozart is to Salieri in it. It's just actors acting. I think I think there's some very fascinating casting decisions that were made here. And Milos Forman, when he talks about them, um, you know, he goes down that list and he's like, the problem with all the people who were singers, right? It's people like David Bowie and whatever. He's like, they couldn't act. They couldn't act well enough for this. And other people who were already movie stars were too well known. And his Mm. whole thing was like, when you see images of Mozart, they're very unremarkable. Uh, And so part of the reason that he landed on Tom Hulse over, say, um, Mark Hamill, well, you already knew Mark Hamill from Star Wars. And so now Luke Skywalker's Mozart. And, you know, that's kind of a problem because he's so memorable already. Um, but yeah, I mean, just getting back to the whole, um, you know, Salieri and Mozart thing. I, like the, the, the acting in this is just like it's it's a duet. And at points, like literally a duet, I guess, as they're, uh, you know, in some of the final scenes composing music together. And they're actually doing a lot of those scenes uh, with little earbuds uh, in their ear, whatever it would have been for, you know, 1983 when they're filming this uh, so that they can actually hear the music uh, that's starting to come up because oh, that's just, really cool. Yeah. So there's um, um, as they're as they're composing that final piece, they actually have the music playing as they're supposed to be trying to like almost um you know like uh, uh create it in real time along with the music so not only are they trying to uh balance this actual time thing out as they play these roles but see this here's the thing though like i was going to jump in on that when you were talking about when you were talking about composing because one thing that is super clear here is that they do not compose together like the um they get this point across so well that Mozart has composed, he's got the music in his head, the rest is just uh, transcribing. He's just writing it down. Like this is when Salieri realizes the first time that, wait, like these are the first drafts of the sheet music uh, through through getting access to the apartment through the maid. Uh, that is just one of those, like this is the difference. He has had a history of working hard every day of his life. Mozart gets uh, this music in his head through divine inspiration. And it's just a matter of writing it down. And that I think is at the heart of this movie as well. Like that, that contrast, that, that conflict between the two characters, one has divine inspiration and is a complete uh, imbecile in a way in Salieri's eyes. The other one has sacrificed and worked hard his entire life and he can't reach that that uh, divinity that's absolutely right and i i laughed the entire time because it seemed to me that the movie was saying that uh like genius and hedonism beats hard work and piety every time and that hard work and piety will only end you up like alone and in an institution well, genius and uh, hedonism gets you remembered forever. It's like, oh, snap. And then I was like, oh, my God, here's my hot take on this film. Amadeus is Hamilton told from Alexander Burr's point of view. I'll, I'll take that. Ooh. And, and it's also, but, you know, it's even the thing where there's a line in there. 
And I wrote it down and kind of had to go back and look at it because it was so funny where Saleri says, from now on, uh, we, we, we are enemies. And, but he's, he's saying speaking that to, to, to God. <laughs> to God, exactly. Like that part right there is, is the most interesting thing. It's like, this just happens to be the object of everything that God has done to him. But really, from now on, it's like, you and me, God, I'll, I'll show you. I think I think that's the the interesting crux of this, um, not just in terms of the actors, but the, the the characters as they're kind of portrayed. Is they have a lot of these interesting conflict points, right? And I think some of these play out across some of the other characters in the movie as well. But like for me, um, one of the ones that exists for both of those characters uh, and where they kind of tie in with this. Um, frenemies or whatever the opposite of that is like enna friends or whatever the the opposite of that is uh is like not receiving not feeling like you receive the recognition you deserve right because salieri has it in the early days and mozart is jealous of all of him and these other italian composers who are so successful and you know he's not getting the recognition for his music but later in life everybody remembers mozart's music but nobody remembers Salieri's, right? Neither of them really get to have that moment of enjoying it, which is kind of this conflict because they're kind of the ones who recognize, especially Salieri to Mozart, that his music is extraordinary, but nobody else seems to get it in the moment, right? You know, that it's interesting because Salieri gets the, when he, when he premieres his opera, he gets not only the, the public uh, applause, but he gets the emperor throwing like lavish praise on him. But Mozart will not give him that. He just says, oh, I, I did not think that such music could exist sort of thing. Like it was just. Yeah, uh, you couldn't tell whether it was yeah. a compliment or not. It, it is not a compliment. <laughs> Whereas for, for Mozart, he he never gets to understand that Salieri is spellbound by his music. So even when uh, he only gets five showings of a particular piece, Salieri was there every night and, and listens to it. Like they have this thing where they just, they can't see it in each other and they don't acknowledge it. And, and they're chasing different things. I, I think there's a, a fascinating just bounce between that of like these, these kind of themes that play out across the characters and often, not just like one character is one thing, but often both characters wind up being both things at different points, right? And I think for me, you actually see some of these things play out across some of the other characters as well. So for me, um, there's this whole uh, theme that plays through the mo movie of um, modernization, moving on to the next thing. You know, Mozart's all about like progressing music, making it better. But there's also this theme of like tradition and staying with tradition. And some of the characters, like the emperor, wind up trying to do the, uh, hey, you know, yes, some new stuff, but also not too far, right? Like not too many notes, which is that line that keeps coming up in the movie, right? <laughs> that um, is the best. The uh, uh, But too many notes, just cut a few and it'll be perfect. And then Mozart starts saying, uh, but, but which ones did you have in mind? You know, it's just what, well, what could it possibly cut only from so yeah. many in one night? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, but which ones? <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, oh, notes on notes. Oh, that makes me so happy. <laughs> and and speaking of notes, uh, perhaps this is a good time to raise the actual music in in this movie like for me uh if ever there was one of those academy awards that i was like yeah that one was well deserved uh it was sound because the way that they actually 
interwove. Fantastic. There's not much else that you can say about it, except like, go watch the movie. Like we could talk about how well they did this, but holy crap, it's so well put together. And you just and then watching F. Murray Abraham, some, you know, right off the off the jump as as old Salieri, hearing the music in his head as the the priest that he's sort of you know, doing who's waiting for his confession is, is waiting for him. And it's just, it's all consuming and you totally get it. You totally get why he's enraptured and enraptured in, in the ecstatic sense, the religious sense by this music. I think that there are two things about the, the music. Like one is just from a pure uh, viewer perspective, the music is so powerful. There's certain things with uh, Don Giovanni. There's certain things, there's certain points where I guess if you're five years old, that's where the PTSD comes from. It's just so traumatic <laughs> and so powerful. But also, like for someone who who, who makes music, I have such a... Uh, it is so fascinating to see when they talk about it. So Salieri saying, so so then this would come in and that, and they, they play just the oboes and then they layer on the strings and then this, that. And you're hearing all of these individual elements in a way that you can picture them doing it. And to to have them think of these elements uh, separately like that to someone like me, it's mind boggling. So that in itself is just something I just go like, wow, I, I, I can't get, get enough of it. Yeah, It's like they're literally sitting at the mixing board because mm-hmm. they are sitting at the mixing board and, but it's all in their head tracks up for you. And it's, Oh, that's just awesome because it's so cool to hear it like that. Yeah. Well, and, and again, the, a lot of the actors had little earpieces in so that they could perform that scene. So to your point, you know, Salieri, as he's having this kind of like haunting memory of the first time he heard the music and he can like he'd be pacing it. So it was along with the music as it actually played out. I think I think the thing for me, too, is because of the way they they do it. um, it gives you a sense of how Salieri is one of the few people who genuinely understands the genius of Mozart because he looks at the page and he can hear the music and the way they do it is him hearing the music, right? Because so much of this is supposed to play out from Salieri's point of view, his memory and whatever. And so he can hear the music even as he's looking at the page as if he's, uh, you know, it's formed into the full opera or the full, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, orchestra playing in his mind and then the second that mozart snaps shut the book it's it ends and it's like in that same way that the music must have ended in his head which is part of where i think the 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 genius of this is because you could easily continue that music you know for the dramatic effect or whatever but it's all about salieri's understanding of it and it ends when the book closes and then it haunts him in the future as he's going back and forth between the younger him and the aged him it moves from um rapturous discovery into kind of like haunting you know memory actually this is a really good that's a really good segue into like there's this admiration then he starts to kind of feel this resentment and then there's a little bit of a passive aggression and not helping. And then it's actively uh, trying to make sure that Mozart is not successful. And then it tips over into what becomes this last part of the movie, which is uh, when he gets the idea of, you know, like th- this is this is my plan to, to end Mozart. And, and I'd be really interested in hearing your takes on 
on that, the segue, and also the, the what you felt about that shift just in terms of the, the Salieri's uh, motivation and his plan? I mean, to me, it's capital T tragic. And that's the beauty of the film to me, is that it is a man undoing the thing that he loves because the thing that he loves, Mozart's music, is made by someone he despises, Mozart, and in destroying, it's it's killing the golden goose in some ways, but not because you're like, oh, give me more of this. It's it's squeezing, you know, squeezing the life out of your enemy, but loving its blood. I don't know. I missed up my no, metaphor somewhere there. Yeah, you went you went a little creepy vampire yeah. there pretty quickly. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think I think I'm with you. Except I'd even say Salieri uh, in that first scene where uh, they're they're at the uh, they're in Salzburg, I guess it is, and it's the first time he's going to meet Mozart, and he says, "I was jealous of him before I even met him." Because, you know, he had all this stuff. His father taught him music and took him everywhere and, you know, dedicated his life to to music. And 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 like, you know, this this kid is composing music at four years old or whatever it is. Like he talks about his jealousy of Mozart before he even meets Mozart. Like it's 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 almost like destiny that he is going to no matter what hate this guy. Right. Uh, and, and it only gets worse once he meets him, but his, his jealousy, I think is there because, um, you know, he's done all these things. He's been celibate and all these things for, for God to give him this spark of, of, you know, divine inspiration. But, you know, yeah, like that, he never that, has that, as good. That is probably my favorite, uh, line in the entire thing, because he, he says this and it happens around that time. Uh, that, that you talk about is saying to God, why implant the desire and then deny me the talent? Like he has this thing around, like, this is my life. This is my passion. But then he sees this person who's got so much more talent. And in Salieri's eyes, he's, he, he has done nothing. He, he doesn't deserve it. So God has given him this to this person who does not deserve it in, in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I, and I I think that's that's one of those things for me which I've I found very interesting because it's just the like clearly Salieri is an amazingly accomplished you know individual. He's the court composer for the the emperor. He's got amazingly successful opera. He's like at the height of his game. Uh, it's just you know he's not Mozart, even though by any accounts, he'd be like, yeah, you're the, uh, one of the top two, uh, <laughs> do, you know, creators of music in, in the Austrian empire. Congratulations. It's like, yeah, but I'm not the best and that's going to haunt me. I'm going to need to take this out on somebody at some point. Yeah. And not only am I not the best, the distance between me and the number one is infinite. Apparently, because it's God's gift. So, yeah, he's kind of angry and awful. So, so, so we should probably say um, we, we should acknowledge the thing out there. The, the As I was getting at the switch between sabotaging versus actively planning the demise of, of, of the other. Because there's a point where that happens with Salieri to say, okay, so here's now my plan. I... 
this is my perfect re revenge. Um, I will um, get uh, Mozart to write this requiem for someone who should have had uh, a proper mass but didn't get it. Uh, and then I will present it as my work for my friend Mozart. And that shift, uh, I think, is both a genius sort of a plot thing, uh, but also taking you know a lot of liberties with, with sort of the history. And I was just interested in your take on that, like how it works as a storytelling device, and and whether it matters even that it's historically, you know, questionable. It didn't really matter to me that it was historically questionable. It was propelling everything forward in a manner that worked for the characters. And so that that's I just I just wanted the story. Uh, I'd say this plays out the same way that, you know, like once upon a time in Hollywood is, you know, historical ish, but obviously not accurate. Right. Uh, and I think for me uh, and we'll get into this because this is one of my things, too, is just like there's a lot of historical accuracy or understanding that goes into this. But then at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is make a good movie that tells a, a certain story. Uh, so there's a lot of liberties that get taken with um, Salieri's character, Mozart's character, some of the other people involved. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff that went into this and some of the, the, the scenes, the wardrobe, the, the actual way it's filmed. There is a ton of other goodness that we've only like even just, glanced over like is there other stuff that stands out to you in that department uh, i think that everybody who won awards for uh hair and makeup and wardrobe totally deserve their awards for hair and makeup and wardrobe like salieri uh his old age makeup is great and you know this 1983 old age makeup probably better than most of the old age makeup we see today certainly better than you know the effect makeup to make people older or younger uh digitally it just it it looks great it's a beautiful thing it's 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 a really beautiful crafted piece of art yeah one of the things that they do so so well is that they show the different settings so they they have a very unique look for the the emperor's court they have a very different look for their home life and and what it looks like there and then when they they show this scene of playing sort of the the version of don uh, giovanni for the the people uh that's a whole different one as well with the, the makeup and and actually like a uh a big shout out there to uh, Simon Callow, who who plays his friend, uh, who people would have seen from Four Weddings uh, and a Funeral, Shakespeare in Love, a lot of other things. Um, uh, James and the Giant Peach. Uh, just every look was distinct and it kind of was accurate for that setting. So, no, I completely agree. I will say, though, and I get, again, five-year-old uh, viewing aside, the blood uh, leave a little bit to be desired. That was one of those early on in the movie. I watched it mm -hmm. and go, oh, oh it's going to be this yeah. type of movie. Yeah. And then like again, like two minutes or something. Yeah. yeah. And then two minutes into it, I completely forgot about it. And I was just like enraptured by the entire thing. But I, it's just funny how little things can set you off. I will say that um, I wasn't actually a fan of the old Salieri makeup. 
because uh, oh I, no way yeah okay. I, in the beginning I was sitting there and I was just like that looks like a rubber mask oh boy like that was the thing that I didn't love but in terms of like everybody else's it's the like I think everybody has such a distinct look and feel I mean the most obvious is is Mozart as he has these um, you know amazing wigs and amazing outfits and like you know at times like over the top makeup going on with it but I think that's true of a lot of the other characters too and that that additional um uh you know just uh visual presence that so many of them have really helps them establish their characters and who they are even before you really know that much uh about them and that's why it's wild to me when you're watching the movie and you're you've got all of those visual cues that like Mozart and his wife are speaking with like New Jersey accents. And it's just, again, like it's, you know, Milos is like, go and concentrate on the acting. Yeah. There was a moment where I was in my head, I was like, am I watching like all in the family or something when she's like, Wolfie. And you're like, Whoa, what's going on here? I will say for me, Michael kind of touched on this question. One of the other strengths for me, and I, I mean, we're still going on what makes this movie great, which I think speaks to its its uh, excellence, is is just the the um, you know the historical accuracy of this movie, right? So the the individuals um, themselves, you know, they they take some um, liberties with, right? Salieri and and Mozart, and you know, their lives weren't exactly accurate. Again, we kind of said like, hey, that's something that they did to help tell this story and, you know, make the points that they wanted to make. But just even in terms of the way that uh, people dress, the way things look, the um, you know, the, the way that they're tying it into uh, the current day. So, uh, you know, at points, the emperor makes a point of like, oh, my sister Antoinette, you know, we're worried about these these peasants getting all uppity or whatever. It's like, well, that's Mary Antoinette, right? We're on the verge of the French Revolution, which helps make sense why he's like, yeah, you know, we want to modernize, but not too much. Uh, And I think they did a a great job of, um, you know, tying in those elements of, for me, at least, who's a history nerd, uh, you know, Europe is on this, this tinderbox that's about to be lit on fire, right? So how do you do this balancing act between, um, you know, moving into the future and, but also not too quickly, not opening up the floodgates, not, you know, opening rebellion. It's partly why I like the, the character of Joseph II that the emperor so much is because he is this guy who has to play this fine balancing act. And I love the way that that kind of comes into the movie where he wants to see the modern, new, fresh composer. He wants to push the boundaries. He even is willing to break his own rules to let it happen. Um, but, you know, doesn't want to go too far. And this is actually bang on for who Joseph II was. He was this guy trying to strike this balance in the real world. It's a really good point because there's a, they go out of their way to tell him the story where by the emperor's own decree, you're not allowed to do uh, this opera. You're not allowed to do ballet. You're not allowed to do a bunch of things. But he's also willing to be... Uh, uh, to, to essentially listen to the argument and be like, yeah, that, that makes no sense. Let's, let's change it. So I think that they tell that very well. Um, but at the same time, there's this overhanging thing to say that unless he fully approves, you know, the one yawn, two yawns, three yawns means disaster. Um, 
that also he's the he sets the tone for someone's success so he's willing to do it he's interested in it but at the same time he's not fully there and it and it sets the course of uh, of, of a person's uh, entire career yeah it's what it's actually what joseph ii referred to as enlightened absolutism uh and so like in the west you had the french revolution and you know these these uh radical movements to have government by the people kind of thing uh his line was government for the people but not by the people. And I think that is the exact thing that plays out in this movie through those conversations where it's just like, oh, what's your take and your take and your take. But I have the final say here, right? I'm the only one who will make this call. And and I think we have to, like, there's no way to end this uh, without talking a little bit about the the father-son relationships because um, Mozart has it with his own father and it, it plays in, um, their relationship throughout the movie and also a big trigger point with Don uh, Giovanni. But I think he also seeks the approval of the, the older characters. So he wants the emperor's approval. He wants uh, Salieri's approval. Uh, and there's a tone there that when, when he hears the news of his father's uh, death and then they cut to uh, Don Giovanni, it's just, it is so powerful. Like it just, it, mind-boggling i wish i could interview the five-year-old uh chris to kind of see you know what what he thought but that that's pretty powerful if you if you want to know the part that was giving me nightmares uh or uh it was the um all of the people wearing those black uh masks where that when they go to the uh the party or whatever so the, the the father wears it the first time and then when um salieri comes back uh, to have him compose the requiem he's wearing the same mask that his father was wearing that like like lifeless black uh party masquerade mask or whatever that they're wearing that thing specifically was like nightmare inducing to me i think when i was a little i think similar to to one of the things that we talked about uh, last time was if this had been made in an era of miniseries or where it was okay to do like a four-hour movie uh, just how more they could have paced some things because it is incredible build-up. I really like all the back and forth. And then just at the very end, it feels like things uh, happen very quickly. And, uh, and and the final 20 minutes just really rush by uh, in a way that's like, look, we, we, we can't make this movie any longer even in the the director's cut it's three hours yeah the original the original was 160 minutes and it had a pg-13 rating uh and then after it was successful in the box office uh milos foreman was basically like all right well if you're gonna go see it at home you already know it's successful you know what you're getting into uh and so he added uh that additional 20 minutes or so back in a lot of that was about um salieri's work and some of the additional scenes that's also what brings back in the scene um between uh constance uh and um salieri where he tries to seduce her kind of i don't know if that's he he puts her on the verge of seducing her whatever it is um so some of those scenes were brought back in and then it got an r-rating important scene yeah i i without that scene constance uh, locking up the the requiem after she walks in on Salieri with you know the dying Mozart wouldn't have nearly as much power. It's just get out of my house, you horrible horrible man. You know, and if you don't see that, if you don't see that scene where she is undressed herself for him, then the, it has so much less power. Yeah, I I agree, and I I'll just tie it back to 
um, you know, Michael's point, I, I found the pacing in the second half or, you know, the last third to be a little, um, uneven. And I've definitely found, uh, arriving at Mozart's death to be like, Whoa, what just happened? Like he died. What? I thought he was just sick. What, uh, what the, uh, so I found that like decline and death to be very sudden, which I mean, in real life, apparently it was, you know, pretty sudden. It did come on very quickly. Nobody knows exactly why there's all sorts of, um, you know, things out there about what it could have been, but like it did come on quickly. But I, I think again, you know, uh, in terms of telling this story, um, you could stretch that out or make it that much more sudden. But like, you know, I, I just found the pacing a little bit, um, uneven into that kind of final stretch of the movie. Uh, but I mean, Again, you know, I'm, I'm kind of picking nits here. I found overall I was I was all in for that conflict and where it was headed. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to say that maybe the last thing that and it was just literally the last thing is the the very, very end of the movie. Uh, you know, you see Salieri being wheeled through the asylum and. Uh, and then you kind of freeze frame and Mozart's high pitched laugh goes over and it's, oh, my God, you literally gave Mozart the last laugh. Literally. And it was a little on the nose. Yeah. But, you know, at that point, I like, I had so much love for the movie at that point. I'm just like, I am willing to to give you a very odd kind of a uh, bit of a of, of a clunky end, you know, just just fade to black there. I think maybe this is a good place that we we've been going for a bit. Uh, take another break. Uh, and on the other side, we can talk about uh, some of our favorite bits about this movie. We'll be right back. All right, we're back and we're going to talk about what our favorite parts of this movie were. So we've got a few questions to go through. Michael, I'm going to ask you first, what was one of the performances in this movie that surprised you? I actually was quite surprised by the uh, by, by Stancy, uh, his wife, because at first she seemed like a non-character whatsoever, just seemed like no interest. But she was one of the people who had the ability to walk away. And actually take a stance. And you also got to see a, a, a nice scene of her kind of seeing uh, Mozart having this uh, uh, relationship, this these kind moments uh, with her child. So I, I, that that surprised me. Every, nothing else surprised me in the sense of they were excellent from the moment first and they stayed excellent. But that was sort of like, oh, yeah, like that's a, that's a really good complimenting character uh, that, that stood out to me. Evan, how about yourself? Yeah, I I thought that that Constance Mozart, uh, Elizabeth Barrage, fantastic job, like very very good job. There were a couple of ones where a, a couple of performances that genuinely surprised me. Uh, Cynthia Nixon, a very young Cynthia Nixon, uh, way pre Sex in the City days, yeah. showing up as the maid uh, that uh, is the spy for Salieri in the Mozart household. I'm like, oh, whoa, I, she did a great job. Um, the, the other performance that surprised me, and I think on purpose, was the performance of the priest, who is there 
taking Salieri's confession because it is so flat and so kind of milk toast. And I think to a point that was made by by you, Chris, earlier when you were talking about the real intention that Milos Forman did in the casting behind this is that uh, I think that he really did go out to find like the most average dude that he could possibly find for that role because we are the priest, like we as the we as the audience, the the priest stands in for us. We are taking Salieri's confession, but his his performance is so. Small, and I think very much on purpose that I was like, what is this guy even doing here? Oh, wait, I see what's going on. Oh, this is really interesting. I like this conceit. Yeah. Plus, there was a there was a I, I took down a note about when uh, when Salieri is talking about the uh, Requiem Mass, and he's talking about uh, God powerless to stop listening, and I for once in the end laughing at him. And then I wrote down about the poor young priest listening to this because his acting right there and then essentially like that he's this young uh, naive sort of optimistic you know uh, a priest and he's getting barraged with all of this like i, I thought that was a, a terrific moment of acting i uh, i personally found uh, the character of um uh joseph ii the emperor uh, to be pretty entertaining for me. There was a lot of little moments. Like for me, that character winds up playing the same role that um, King George does in Hamilton, uh, both a little bit of comic relief, but also kind of helping set the tone of like, where does this story take place in the world? What's happening more broadly? Uh, and also just those moments of, we were talking about him trying to tread this middle path between modernizing, but not too much, not too quickly, where they're having those conflicts and those, just those moments where he goes, uh, uh, mm-hmm. well, there it is. And you're like, okay, that's all you've got to say about this conflict going on between these people. And it's just those like little, little one-liners thrown in that just made me chuckle throughout. Um, so I think that ties pretty easily into then, uh, what was the like most memorable, scene or line from this movie. And for me, it was that, mm-hmm, well, there it is, which was used a number of times where he just makes that little, mm-hmm, and then kind of like, you know, doesn't want to voice his opinion, uh, which it just made me laugh every time it happened. Um, Evan, how about yourself? Favorite, favorite scene or uh, line in this movie? Well, first I, I want to thank you for validating my hot take that this movie is Hamilton just told from Alexander Burr's point of view. I didn't go all the way there, but okay, go on. I, I mean, no, really, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for validating that. Um, you know, remember, I know that that Michael and I share the fa- same favorite line uh, because we were speaking about that before we started recording. I'll let him say it because evidently I don't remember it properly, but it's still my favorite line. Uh, and uh, as for scenes... Uh, I mean, Salieri talking about the the requiem with the priest, mm-hmm. chef's kiss. So like, so good. So, 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 so good. So that that for me, really just big thumbs up. Michael, yeah, so the, the one, line? yeah, the one that that Emma refers to is right at the very end when uh, Salieri is being rolled out in the sanatorium. He says, "I am the patron saint of mediocrities. I absolve you all." But for me, actually, and I mentioned it earlier, was this whole thing around 
asking God, why implant the desire and deny me the talent? Because for me, that really was the, that just struck such a nerve. This whole thing around craft versus inspiration. Um, you know, we've used this word compose many times uh, versus improvise versus just writing it down. Like there's something about the Mozart character versus Salieri and that is at the heart of it. And I think that's just that I'm going to carry with me um, for a long time. Even those scenes where Salieri's sitting there, when he when he um, uh, Mozart's wife brings the folder to him, so so that he can get uh, so Mozart can get the job with the emperor or whatever, and and he's seeing the the original scores and he looks at it and he's like, he just wrote it down. Like a composer has to make changes and adjustments and use like notes on notes and of scribbles and whatever, and it's like it's perfect. It just came out of his head that way. Like I'm like. That's that's pretty cool. I, 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 There's actually a really interesting shot in that moment, too, because it is is one of the uh, very few close ups in the movie. Mm-hmm. It may be even be one of the only sort of close up POV shots in the movie. About Marie Abraham. Yeah. Yeah. Where where they they shoot Salieri's hands holding the, the the close-up of the of the music and that is jarring but in in a way where it's very very intentionally jarring so that you like Salieri suddenly go like holy shit like what 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 is that what what just happened visually what just happened and Salieri's like my mind has just been blown you can't rewrite perfection yeah th- that that happens at another scene too earlier on when he uh first sees and meets Mozart uh where mm-hmm. he's he's just reading the music that's left on the music stand uh and you have that same kind of thing where he's you see that his hand kind of opening the book and yeah I, I I love both of those and those are the moments where you can hear the music swell and it's in his head and then he just you know it's this rapturous understanding of what Mozart's music truly means I, I will say for me one of my favorite scenes in in the movie as a whole is and I think it's like such a um it's like you the entire plot of the movie in brief uh, is that first meeting with the emperor when Salieri composes that entrance march and then Mozart comes in. And he's like, oh, no, I don't need that. I, I, I got that whole thing in my head. And in fact, not not only do I have it in my head, but I'm going to make it better. Uh, and you can see this conflict play out in this like one scene between Mozart, who just wants to um make the best music. And so, yeah, that was music, but I can make it better. Uh, and Salieri kind of both in awe, but also furious with Mozart and kind of these natural talents as he just wings it. And for me, that was just such a great, um, you know, not only is it kind of funny as it's happening, but it's such a great uh, way to play out the the conflict that plays out over the course of the movie between those two characters is just that like, love hate uh, that Salieri has for Mozart and his music. Um, what about after watching this movie? Were there things that you were wondering about or thinking about after you watched this? Yeah. Do people in Vienna just have random costume parties like all the time? Like still like today or like I, 200 I years ago? <laughs> no, no, no. I know that they don't to, today as often apparently, but like, you know, it just costume parties just seem to come out of the blue. Everybody seemed to be having a costume party. 
I, I, no? I, I, no, okay. That wasn't I mean, that stuck with you. All right, fine. I mean, I think we're talking about a top 1% kind of situation. So I, I don't know, maybe even like uh, top uh, 1% people now just have random costume parties in the middle of the day. I'm, I'm, I don't get to be part of the crew. I couldn't tell you. Yeah. For, for me, we talked about it a little bit already. This whole thing around, does it matter the historical accuracy uh, in the end move like this? Uh, is it, does it matter whether they had costume parties every night? Uh, like, how many costumes do you have in, in a household? Um, matters to me. Yeah. But, how many, but no, how so many, I, How many costumes yeah. do you have, Evan? <laughs> a whole people yeah. trunk full, like uh, a good Canadian. <laughs> but, but I think like the, the, the way to go into a movie like this is just to kind of like watch it, enjoy it on its own merit. And, uh, and I think you're, you're really going to have a, a great time. Yeah, I mean, you know, it did make me want to. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Chris. It, like, it did make me want to go and actually like listen to some of Mozart's operas and pieces again because opera, when it was explained, is pretty cool. And I have some very strong memories of loving Magic Flute as a kid. Um, and I was like, oh man, like I, I should I go back to listening to some of that stuff? I, I think I should. I, I will say that after watching this, uh, I, I wound up doing two things, which was one, putting on a little bit of Mozart and listening to it while I looked up the historical accuracy of this movie. Um, <laughs> so it was a, a twofer for me. Um, a lot of the questions I had were about the, um, you know, accuracy of this because I found the movie itself was uh, wonderful. It kind of answered all the questions that I had. It's such a uh, well-told and kind of complete story for me. Um, but like I did, I did wonder how true it was. And again, you know, we pointed out some of the stuff. One of the other things too, was just like, um, the rivalry in real life was probably more professional than anything. Mozart's son was actually a student of Salieri. Like huh. if that doesn't kind of put into context what the real life rivalry was like, you know, it probably was more of a professional one because Salieri was an excellent teacher. And, you know, he taught all these other great um, composers, List, List uh, Beethoven, uh, like all these other famous folks. And he was also teaching Mozart's son. So I think there's, you know, those were the kind of questions I came away with, which again, I, I don't care what liberties were taken. Uh, you know, there's lots of other movies that take liberties. Uh, and this is just an amazing story uh, to be told. And speaking of the story, um, you know, is this a story, a movie that you're going to come back to soon? Do you think you'll come back to this Do you th uh, in the near future? I don't know about the near future um, because it is three hours and uh, there are other movies to watch, but I'm really glad that I've seen it now and maybe I'll come back to it. You know, when when my son's old enough to to watch it and won't give him, you know, Not, eight year old. Nightmares. Yeah, don't don't have uh, another me in 30 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're we're all striving not to do that, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I don't know that I'm going to go back to it immediately, but I'm I feel very good for finally having seen this movie. Yeah, I think this is an easy one to to recommend to people. I think if I watch it again in the next um, what's the since last time uh, thirty eight years. Yeah, I'm I'm okay with that. The next thirty eight years, and I'll recommend it to anyone in the meantime. Yeah, that that feels about right. Yeah. What about you, Chris? Yeah, I, I'm kind of in that same boat where if somebody was like, I'm thinking of watching this movie. I've never seen it. I'm like, you should. It's a good movie. And if they were like, would you like to watch it with me? I'm like, 
Come talk to me about it once you're done. You know, I don't know that I need to watch it again, but I would quite happily talk to people about it because I think it is a movie that you can have a lot of different takes on uh, that a lot of, um, you know, like a lot of those themes and, and plot points that we talked about, uh, you know, you could have interesting uh, conversations with anybody who was into this movie. I don't know that I would recommend it to everyone. Uh, it is, you know, a three hour play essentially in a movie and, you know, but uh, am I jumping back into it anytime soon? No, but I'm also lucky enough that I get to talk about it with two people. Uh, and, uh, that's what we just did. So I think here yeah. is probably a good point to call it a wrap. All right. So that was Amadeus. Uh, and if you found that helpful, then please do us a favor. Uh, you can go rate, subscribe or review uh, this episode or any other episode you've listened to. Uh, it helps us out. Uh, and if you have any thoughts about uh, the movie, uh, questions that didn't get answered or other ideas about Amadeus uh, or movies for us to watch in the future, uh, you can hit us up on Twitter for at how did you miss this? That's at H-D-Y-M-T underscore pod. Uh, and you can shoot us any questions or thoughts you might have. We'd love to hear from you. And until then, we will see you next time.